Hello folks, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales-based one-person true crime show that looks for those accounts you won't likely know, you may less even likely believe, of dark tales from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's always wonderful to have you guys joining me, and I hope that as you do so, then each of you and yours are all good and you're all well. So I'm starting then with a many thanks for the feedback concerning the previous episode of the show, Death in the Family. Such a great choice there by Katie, I thought, Albert Pierpoint and his clan. It's a proper side of true crime that you just wouldn't think of that, would you? The executioner's story. So I love these different spins on things. And that was one that I found so very interesting to have done. So interesting, in fact, and I never usually give the episode details away. But this month's bonus Patreon episode will feature him too for an episode entitled Pierpoint's Last Drop. If you guys want to hear this one and others including Obsession by the Sea, The Mystery of Leatham Street, Sanctuary or The Madness at Mother Max, then becoming a supporter is simple and it's very reasonable to do. You can just head on over to the Patreon site and look up the show there or you can use the link to it that's in this and every episode show notes. Quicker than Pretty Patel robbing dinner money off a staff, you could be hearing these and several other unreleased episodes. And there's even the option for me sending you some things as a thank you. And you, of course, get a shout out of thanks here, like new supporters Lee McKitten, Alison McCarthy, and Matthew Rowley, plus David Richards, Alison Owen, Peggy Lepage, Steve Sheen, and Holly Fleming, who've all opted to become annual supporters of the show. It's absolutely sterling of you that is guys, thank you so much for supporting because it does mean the world and please make sure to pass on details to me where I can send you a small token of appreciation for doing so. I'd like to remind also that as we're rumbling towards the end of a pretty shit year, well it's been one mostly hasn't it, then perhaps you'd like to cheer yourself up by grabbing yourself some tickets to CrimeCon 2021. It's coming to the UK in June of next year and alongside some high profile guests from the world of true crime, including your favourite hosts from A shows such as the UK True Crime Podcast, They Walk Among Us, Twisted Britain, Seeing Red, Men's Rear, Lady Justice, Skinwalker, Murder Mile, the list goes on. Then the true crime enthusiast will be there for the weekend also. Well, I'll be there, you know what I mean. I don't know why I started speaking like The Rock then or anything. It'll be great seeing and meeting some of you guys at the event, which does promise to be a full-on great weekend. And should you wish to get yourselves there, then the organisers have some early bird tickets still available, which can get yourself at 10% off the price by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST at checkout. Plus, if you let me know that you've done so, I can make sure there's a bag of something true crime enthusiast related waiting for you there as a thanks. So after my short break, It's chocker times in the pension plan right now, what can I say? I'm back in the writing chair for this one, and I'm here with a tale that's sure to anger the listener. It was one that sickened me completely. It wasn't one I'd planned to cover either, as I was researching another case at the time, but as I've said before, these things do sometimes choose themselves. Now here on the show, nothing tends to rile me more, apart from cases that involve children, than cases that involve the elderly. 
Think back to the Minstead episode from a couple of series ago and the true horror that Delroy Grant put his victims through. Or, if you're a Patreon supporter, then the episode Double Brandy Dan and Auntie Elsie from some months back, and I'm sure you'll know the distaste that I have for crimes against such a vulnerable section of our society. They really are actions that sicken and anger me. Anything, and it's not just crimes of violence, be it a distraction burglary, or someone phoning up and fleecing some old grandma out of her life savings by falsely claiming that she needs new windows or she needs a roof done, then those responsible should be publicly flogged, just for a start. The tale featured here involves a perpetrator that I'd quite happily do that to as well, for the crimes featured are despicable. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving offences against the elderly that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so discretion is advised whilst listening all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Handiwork. I'll begin the episode with a quote from Detective Sergeant Paul Williams from South Wales Police. The elderly often have a perception that we live in a very violent society, to the extent where they won't go out at night, and in many cases, won't go out in the day either, because of the fear of crime. When something like this happens, it tends to reinforce that perception, so it affects the quality of life for a great number of people. For our story, we're off for the first time this series to my home country, down to South Wales and to the Welsh seaside resort town of Barry, the home of Britain's smallest theatre and cinema, reportedly the destination which was the inspiration for the chain of Butlin's holiday camps, and which will be all too familiar to you if you watch TV show Gavin and Stacey. Now I'm not a particularly massive fan of it myself, I know it's a smash hit show and all that, but personally, I can't be doing with James Corden or Rob Brydon. I can't bloody bear either of them. And I couldn't care less what happened on that fishing trip. A tiny bit of an aside as a stat about Gavin and Stacey as well is that I believe most of the characters in it have the surnames of British serial killers West, Shipman and Sutcliffe. All three who've now shuffled off as well for the match ball, making the earth that little bit cleaner but I digress. 56-year-old Sheila Mounter was sat at home at 8pm on the evening of Wednesday the 20th of March 1996, Corrie having just finished, when the telephone rang and she answered it to find a concerned cousin from Worcestershire, Marjorie Evanson, on the end of the line. Marjorie had rung Sheila because she was concerned that she'd attempted contacting the cousin's shared aunt, 90-year-old Enid Poole, at home for the telephone call that they shared a couple of times each week, and Aunt Enid wasn't answering. Now when relatives get to a certain age, you do worry for the worst at a break in routine such as this. For although Enid had failing eyesight and she lived alone, she was fiercely independent and a proper creature of habit, and so Marjorie had called Sheila, who lived only a short walk from her aunt, to get her to make a journey around there to see if everything was okay. As soon as Marjorie had rung off, Sheila herself tried twice telephoning her aunt, but unsuccessfully. So concerned that her aunt may have fallen or taken ill, 
Sheila and her husband Richard decided they would make the short journey from their home in Cannon Street around to Enid's flat in Rowan Court, part of a complex of sheltered housing just off Barry's St Nicholas Road, to check upon her, having a set of keys to the property to let themselves in in case of any emergencies. Only a short time later, having made their way quickly around there, the mounters let themselves in to Enid's locked flat and were met with a distressing sight. Heading from the narrow hallway into the sitting room of the small flat, the room, as well as the other rooms in the ground floor property, had been ransacked. Ornaments and keepsakes had been broken, drawers had been left half open, their contents and property scattered and strewn everywhere, and the telephone, which had been connected to the local authority helpline, as is with many elderly people, had been ripped out. On the floor of the sitting room, Enid Poole lay motionless face down, her clothing and the carpet around where she lay saturated with blood, as well as the walls, furniture and even the ceiling of the room spattered with it, from what must have been a ferocious attack. Her false teeth had been knocked out and smashed, so violently had she been struck. She appeared to have been savagely beaten around the face and head, and was severely cut about both. Whilst Richard immediately went next door and from there telephoned for the emergency services to attend, Sheila knelt and checked her aunt for signs of life, finding a very weak pulse. She attempted to speak to her, trying to find out what had happened, and to reassure her that help was on the way, but her aunt was barely conscious. Now just imagine the horror and distress that you must feel finding a loved one like that. I hope that anybody listening hasn't ever had to, because it must just be terrible. It's unsettling enough if an elderly relative or neighbour has just had a fall, isn't it? But to find something so awful, there just simply isn't words. Kneeling by her aunt, who was a creature of habit, Sheila realised that she was still wearing her day clothes, distressing her more because she didn't know how long her aunt had lain there. As the mounters began to look about the place without disturbing anything, they began to wonder how had their attacker gotten in. There were no signs of forced entry to the property on any of the windows, plus there was only one door to the flat, and this had been securely locked. The mounters had had to let themselves in. They were also at a loss to explain exactly the reason why. If this had been a burglary, then it had been one that was extremely inept, as not only was Enid by no means a wealthy woman and wouldn't have had large sums of cash in her home, little more than her pension, the mounters had noticed amounts of cash and jewellery lying littered about in the clutter of the flat. The most likely explanation, police were to later claim, was that the intruder was in such a frenzy when attacking Enid, I quote, he wasn't systematically capable of burgling the flat. I'll just leave that sink in somewhat. This is a 90-year-old lady, this is. Emergency services were on the scene just after 8.30pm, and whilst paramedics were attending to Enid, who by that time had briefly regained consciousness, two uniformed police officers arrived. One of them gently attempted to speak to Enid and asked her what had happened, to which she replied, somewhat confused and shocked, that she'd fallen. But one look at the injuries to her face and head, plus taking in the devastation of the entire flat, 
and there was more chance of me warming to someone who described something as being on fleek than thinking this was an accidental fall. Someone had done this to Enid with murderous intent. As a result, the officer responded to the force control room requesting the attendance of CID as well as a scene of crime team. By 9.25pm, door-to-door inquiries had begun around the sheltered housing complex where Enid lived and it was soon established that, as we've said, Enid was a creature of habit, a routine known to many of her elderly friends and neighbours. But she'd not been seen going out, as was part of this routine, late that afternoon for a short walk before tea. A neighbour of Enid's had spoken to her in the mid-afternoon, however, so detectives could pinpoint that she'd been attacked most likely at around half past three that Wednesday afternoon, and had lain on the floor for all of that time, injured and afraid, until her relatives discovered her some five hours later. Richard Mounter later said, Obviously she'd been laying there for some time. It was about half past eight before we actually got down there in the evening. What was going through her mind? What she'd attempted to do under those circumstances? We just don't know. I couldn't believe her at the time, but after a few hours I thought, this is terrible. How can someone do this to anyone, never mind a 90-year-old? Indeed, eh? Boggles the mind, doesn't it? A floodlit search of the area around the housing complex was also now underway, searching for any possibly discarded property or a weapon that may have been used to batter Enid. And although a deeper, full forensic examination of Enid's flat was arranged for first thing the following morning, senior crime officers attending did go in and swab for forensic samples from the scene, wanting to obtain specimens before any deteriorated to a point where they could be of little evidential use. It was the initial thought of detectives that Enid had been the victim of what had begun at least as a distraction burglary. The lack of signs of forced entry to the flat suggested that she'd let her attacker in in all innocence, possibly with him posing as a bogus official, but they were unable to fathom the reason for the sheer violence of the attack which was being treated from the off as a potential murder inquiry, as due to Enid's age and her grave injuries, the chances of survival from such an assault were slim to poor. And such an assault is right. Pictures of Enid's injuries appeared on the front page of the South Wales Echo newspaper two days after the crime. I'll explain the reason why it was given such prominence shortly, but the description of the injuries as a noted by police surgeon Dr Sally Wood, is as follows. Two blackened eyes with severe laceration underneath the right eye. Severe lacerations to the right temple and right ear. Severe bruising and laceration to the lower lip and chin. And severe bruising to the shoulders, hands, arms and knees. It was the opinion of the examining surgeon that the facial bruising to the lower part of Enid's face had been caused by her attacker gripping her there while striking her. Whilst the remainder of the injuries had been caused by repeated blows from possibly a blunt instrument, but more likely caused by kicks or stamping. The injuries to Enid's arms, hands and knees were those characteristic of defensive injuries, often seen on victims who attempt to ward off blows to the head by putting their hands and arms up to protect the area, or by curling into a ball to do so. 
This is what Enid had done as she was being attacked. Now I included the injuries in as much detail here. I didn't just say Enid had been severely injured or anything. I included them not to sensationalise, not to cause distress or show any disrespect to Enid or her family at all, but to express to you the true absolute horror of what this person had done to a 90-year-old lady. It's something I couldn't and wouldn't sanitise at all. So the following morning, Thursday the 21st of March, before the full forensic examination of Enid's Rowan Close flat got underway, as the officer assigned to the case, Detective Sergeant Paul Williams arrived for duty that morning. He took a distressed telephone call from 81-year-old Mrs. Rona Bennett, another resident of the complex, who imparted to him that she believed that the previous afternoon she'd innocently directed a caller to her home to Enid Poole's flat, only a short distance away. Reassuring Rona, who understandably was upset and felt some misplaced sense of responsibility for the crime having done this, DS Williams told her that he would be right around to speak to her, this being crucial information as the inquiry may be able to hit the ground running with an eyewitness description of the attacker. But that morning was to bring something else that added a new depth to the inquiry, something much more terrible. At approximately the same time Rona Bennett was on the telephone to DS Williams, another resident of the complex, Jeanette Wilson, who lived in a first floor flat on Laurel Court, had noticed that the milk bottle delivered each day was still on the doorstep of her neighbour across the hall, an 86-year-old retired headteacher and lecturer named Maya Luffer. This struck Jeanette as being unusual, as like many elderly people, Maya had a set routine and would always take in her milk much earlier, so, perhaps unsettled by the heavy police presence indicating what had occurred just a hundred yards away the previous evening, Jeanette decided to call on a mutual friend of them both who lived downstairs, Emily Cuthbert, to tell her. When Emily agreed that this was indeed unusual, they then decided to head around to Myers to see if everything was alright, Emily having a spare key. Upon opening the door and calling Myers' name, there was no response, and moving into the sitting room, the two women stopped and went no further, terrified. The room's furniture was scattered about, and the carpet was spattered with blood. Emily immediately made her way to the upstairs flat occupied by Jim Howells, babbling excitedly and fearfully to him when he answered the door about what they'd discovered, and when he followed her downstairs, found Jeanette stood outside Maya's flat, she too in a distressed state. He made his way inside and walked through Maya's dishevelled sitting room into the bedroom, calling unsuccessfully for Maya until he went into the bathroom. It was there that he found her. Maya Luffer was lying on her side in the bath, still fully clothed, her head resting upon the wall by the tap unit. Her face was obscured mostly by her long hair, which Mr Howells could see was matted with blood and which covered her clothes, hands and legs also. She lay perfectly still and silently, and a shocked Mr Howells made his way out to speak to his two neighbours, telling them gently, that he'd found Maya Luffer dead inside. 
He went back inside as the two went to call the police and it was then that he saw Maya's head slightly move. She was still alive, although gravely injured. By this time, Detective Sergeant Williams had arrived at the complex to take a statement from Rona Bennett, but finding her not home, was heading back to his car when he heard someone call to him, and he turned to see an elderly lady, who it transpired was Rona Bennett, hurrying towards him across the lawns from the direction of Laurel Close, where Maya Luffer's flat was. Rona had headed over to Maya's flat as soon as it transpired something was up. Residents in such a complex do tend to know one another and look out for one another too, don't they? And knowing that DS Williams was on his way over there then, had gone to look for him. She explained what Jim Howells had discovered, and so DS Williams rushed to the flat, arriving to find Maya making a feeble attempt to raise herself from a position her hands slipping from the tiles and sides of the bath. At that moment, a detective constable, Paul James, in accompaniment with a senior crime team, arrived outside Enid Poole's flat, only to hear a commotion from across the lawns. He headed over to see what was up, and upon identifying himself, was allowed access to Maya Luffer's flat, where he was met by Detective Sergeant Williams, who was talking soothingly and reassuringly to the barely responsive, severely injured old lady. After radioing for an ambulance to attend urgently, DC James took in the scene before him. Like Enid, Maya's flat had been ransacked, the furniture had been smashed and thrown about the sitting room, drawers and their contents pulled out and scattered, clothing strewn about everywhere, and the telephone, which once again had been connected to the local health authority, had been wrenched out. Unlike Enid's, the sitting room was spattered with blood. The chairs, walls and carpet all showed traces from the savage attack. DC James said later, You prepare as best you can, but the sight of someone as small, as elderly as Miss Luffer, trying to pull herself up out of the bath and she couldn't, it's a sad thing to see. Seeing Miss Luffer was a sight that I'd never experienced before and hopefully will never experience again. But it is something that you do have to put to the back of your mind and carry on with the job in hand. Perhaps that gives you more impetus then to catch the person responsible. Awfully. And it would do, wouldn't it? How could it ever not seeing something as heartbreaking as that, I ask you? How, how could it not just make you want to do everything in your power to stop that person? An ambulance arrived only minutes later and paramedics took time gingerly lifting Maya out of the bath from the awkward position she lay in, carefully checking her for any signs of fracture or dislocation and all the time conscious for any sudden trauma or crisis she may suffer when being lifted. From the examination, it was apparent that she had severe head and facial injuries, and the amount of congealed blood on her hair and clothing suggested that it had happened some time before, and she'd lain there for a very long time. Eventually, with a collar and back brace fitted, Maya was taken to the ambulance and rushed to Cardiff Royal Infirmary. Now, what are the chances of two random attacks a hundred yards apart on the same night? More chance of Ken Barlow getting the droop, that's what. This was now a huge implication. 
police had an attacker who had struck at least twice, and as there was no way that the attacker had returned to the scene to attack another elderly resident the previous evening, given the large police presence, it meant that then he must have attacked Maya shortly before or after, battering Enid half to death, which would mean Maya Luffer had lain gravely wounded in a bath for almost 17 hours. Once Maya had been taken to hospital then, and the flat sealed off awaiting senior crime officers, the residents of every property in the complex were accounted for, and all others thankfully were. D.S. Williams then finally got around to speak to Rona Bennett, and to take a statement. Rona's flat was equidistant between Enid and Myers, the complex being made up so that each close faced one another across a communal lawn and Rona could see both women's flats from her sitting room window. At about 3.30pm the previous afternoon, Rona's doorbell had rung, and she'd answered it to find stood on the doorstep a dark-haired young man of about 30 years of age, dressed in a leather jacket, dark trousers, white shirt underneath a light sweater, pleasant-looking, was how she described him. Smiling, the man asked her in a strong Welsh accent if his keys had been handed in there, which mystified her somewhat, and when she said they hadn't and she didn't know what he was talking about, he looked puzzled, saying that he'd been told that his keys had been left at the first flat. She directed him to try the flat opposite, which belonged to a couple called the Davidsons, and so the man thanked her and made his way to the flat across the hall. However, although he pretended to ring the doorbell, Rona knew that he hadn't. The Davidson's bell was extremely loud when it was activated, yet she heard nothing. Plus she knew that they were in and would have answered, as she could see Gordon Davidson's umbrella in its stand outside. After waiting a few seconds, the man then came back over to Rona's door and said that he'd definitely been told that his keys had been left at an elderly woman's flat at the end of the drive. And so thinking he must mean an opposite flat, Ronan directed the man to where she thought he meant. Thanking her for her help, he set off, saying, Sorry to have bothered you. Enid Poole lived at the other end of the drive. Now, a bit uneasy about the strangeness of this, after watching the man disappear around the corner towards Enid's front door, about five minutes later, Ronan made her way across to the Davidsons and told them what had just happened. She was just describing the caller to them when all three noticed a man walk past the window across the lawns heading from the direction of Enid's flat whom Rona identified to the Davidsons as the man who'd just called around at hers. All three subsequently watched as the man made his way out of sight and didn't see him again after that. He disappeared in the direction of Laurel Close where Maya Luffer lived. Meanwhile, as Rona was describing the sighting in her statement, Maya Luffer had arrived at Cardiff Royal Infirmary, where her injuries were thoroughly evaluated. Doctors estimated from the wounds, which x-rays were to show included a fractured right eye socket, fractured right cheekbone, a doubly fractured jaw, and visible deep cuts and severe blackening to both eyes, that aside from punches or kicks, the depth and characteristics of Maya's head and facial wounds were mostly consistent with heavy impact ones, 
those caused by a heavy wooden or metal weapon. Whilst arrangements were made for Maya to have the emergency reconstructive surgery she was to require, and which she was shortly taken to theatre to have, before this she was visited on the ward she'd been admitted to by the first member of her family to arrive there, her niece Emma Wallace, who was understandably shocked and visibly distressed at the sight of her aunt. As Emma took the old lady's hand, Maya, although she was initially confused, eventually recognised her niece and attempted to speak to her, though due to her injuries, Maya's speech was little more than an unclear whisper. Putting her ear close to her aunt's lips, after hearing what she had to say, Emma squeezed her aunt's hand and told the detective who was stood by Maya's bedside, John Venners. She's concerned about the woman who goes to the flat and does her hair. She wants me to tell her she's sorry and she can't keep today's appointment. Maya was then taken to theatre for surgery to repair her serious facial injuries, following which she was admitted to a private room in the infirmary to recover. Now that one statement to her niece proper broke me when I was researching this episode. I thought to myself, this lady, that's a generation thing that, isn't it? Being so conscientious that even in the utmost pain and suffering like that, you're thinking of someone else, apologetic for letting someone down, however trivial it may seem to us. I find characters such as that nothing short of remarkable, and it just served to make this story that much more tragic and angering for me. I hope you guys know where I'm coming from there when I say that. House to house inquiries were now widened to encompass more of the town, and when news of the horrific double attempted murder became known, because Let's not piss about here. What is this if it's not attempted murder? Several other people were to give police information that suggested the same man had made calls on several elderly people in the Barry area on the afternoon of the previous Wednesday, aside from Rona and, of course, Enid and Meyer. At 1pm that afternoon, in the lakeside area of the parade, half a mile away from Rowan Close and Laurel Court, 84-year-old Miss Charlotte Pritchard was at home when her front doorbell rang, and she answered it to find a man fitting the description Rona Bennett had given stood on the doorstep. He asked Mrs Pritchard if she knew the whereabouts of a lady who she didn't know, and the name he'd given she couldn't remember by the time she'd spoken to police. The man immediately then asked if he could use the telephone directory, which she handed to him for having the presence of mind to keep her caller outside the door. She noticed that he took a quick look into the sitting room, then an even quicker look through the phone book, made a show of finding what he was looking for, and then quickly left. Probably because Mrs Pritchard was not alone at the time, entertaining her friend and neighbour, Maisie Henderson. 30 minutes later, 75-year-old widow Julia Morgan was watching television at home in Celium Flats in the Cross Howells area, only a short walk up from Charlotte Pritchard's house. Celium Flats, like both Charlotte's home and the complex where Meyer and Enid lived, was part of another complex that was mainly occupied by elderly residents, apparent to even the most casual observer from the hand railings and gradual inclines that all such places are usually landscaped and fitted out with. 
As Julia was ensconced in whatever was on at lunchtime in the 90s, before the first neighbours of the day, obviously, the one that was weirdly always five minutes shorter than the same tea time edition, but you never noticed any difference. X-Files or what that, eh? The intercom had sounded. She answered it to find a pleasant sounding man on the other end, who told her in a strong Welsh accent that he was looking for a Mrs George who lived in the flat next door. Now Julia did remember a Miss George who had at one time lived there, but who was now in a nearby nursing home on the parade due to her infirmity, and when she explained this to the caller, he asked would she kindly mind writing the address of the nursing home down for him, explaining that Miss George was his aunt. Julia said, yeah, that's fine, and pressed the access button from the intercom, allowing the caller access in through the complex's main entrance door. When she answered the knock to her own door, she opened it to find a smiling man of a description that was now becoming all too familiar. He explained to Julia that his name was Stephen, repeating once again that he was Miss George's nephew, and took the piece of paper Julia had written the name of the nursing home Miss George was in from her. He then asked Julia politely if he could have a drink of water, saying to her, I've got a tickle in my throat, it feels just like a feather. Unthreatened and obliging, but still with security conscious about her, Julia asked him to wait and told him she would fetch him a glass, pushing the door to, but not completely closing it, because it feels rude shutting the door on a caller on the step after all if you need to nip in for something, doesn't it? But when she came out of her kitchen with a glass of water, she found that the man was no longer waiting in the hall, but had stepped inside the flat and was standing near the door, glancing into the living room, which startled her somewhat. The man took the water from her, which he thanked her for, and drank it. Then he handed back the glass and asked her if he could use the telephone, saying with a smile, I'll reverse the charges, of course. Now Julia felt uneasy about this, because her telephone was in the lounge, and this would mean allowing the stranger further access into her home. But his manner appeared so warm, so smiling, and so pleasant looking was he, that she found herself agreeing. As they went into the lounge, however, it suddenly dawned on Julia that Miss George had actually had no relatives, come to think of it. So this guy couldn't have been a nephew, he was lying. Nevertheless, she watched him dial a number, listen for a second and then put the phone down, telling her the line was engaged. He then asked her for another glass of water, which she complied with, by now wishing she'd never allowed the man access, and when she handed it to him, he asked her if the telephone had a redial facility. She told him that it hadn't, and he appeared to drop the idea of calling anyone. He instead engaged Julia in conversation, a fairly one-sided one, for about 15 minutes, during which, she was later to tell police, he once again told her that his name was Stephen, and that he lived in Cheltenham, but had previously lived in Worcestershire. She got the impression that he was familiar with the area though, for example, he described several years previously swimming in the outdoor pool at Old Knapp, just opposite Watchhouse Bay, and said that the last time he'd visited Barry, Marine Lake, the lake just off the unsurprisingly named road Lakeside, where Celium Flats are, was in the process of being landscaped, which had indeed happened some years previously. He had then lit up a cigarette, without asking, disregarding that Julia was a non-smoker, 
and tried the telephone again, which after only a second or two after dialing, he claimed was engaged once again. He never explained who it was he was trying to call. By the time he asked Julia for a third glass of water, she was now conscious enough to want to be rid of her visitor that she told him to help himself from the kitchen, thus getting him out of the lounge and nearer to the door, adding the remark that she was expecting visitors at any moment. He did help himself to another, and after gulping down the water, the man thanked her and left, to Julia's relief. The following day, Julia discovered that at the point she'd been in the kitchen fetching the second glass of water, the man must have rifled through her handbag. He'd only taken a few business cards, a Tesco receipt and a book of first-class stamps from her purse, however. Police believing he'd stolen these either because, in his haste, he couldn't see what it was he'd pocketed, or he got flustered whilst doing so, and believed that it was safer and quicker for him to pocket the stuff rather than put it back and risk being caught. He'd also left because Julia's bluff that she was expecting company at any moment had worked and he didn't want to risk being caught there or having more eyewitnesses who could possibly identify him. This man, it was believed, then went and committed attempted murder twice, just over two hours later. At 3.20pm that afternoon, ten minutes before Rona had answered the knock to her own door, Mrs Tanya Quilter returned from a shopping trip to her flat on the opposite side of St Nicholas Road, just around the corner from the complex where Rona, Enid Poole and Maya Luffer lived, to find a man standing inside her porch, his hand on the door handle to her flat. I'm sure you can imagine the description of him by now and how he sounded, and when Tanya asked him what he was doing, he said, I've been knocking on the door, how many people live here? I can't get an answer. Ignoring this, Tanya once again asked him what he was doing, to which he replied that he'd lost a set of keys earlier that day, possibly at the Grove bus stop just outside the flat, and he hoped that somebody may have handed them in at the nearest house. When Tanya told him firmly that she hadn't seen any keys, he said in a well-mannered way, Oh, sorry to trouble you, and walked off. She watched the man disappear across the road in the direction of Rowan Court, before noticing that the lace curtains in her porch had been disturbed and some leaflets on the hall windowsill moved. The husband had been in the flat all the time she'd been out and at no point had he heard anyone knocking on the door. Police estimated that just 15 minutes after this sighting, Enid Poole had been attacked by what had to be the same guy just five minutes after he'd knocked on Rona Bennett's door. But by that time also, they could also establish that Meyer had been attacked shortly before 4pm. A woman named Linda Holt, a friend of Emily Cuthbert's, the woman who had a spare key to Meyer's, left her flat in the same complex just before then to visit Emily, and as she approached the Laurel Court block, she saw a man, dark-haired and dressed in dark clothing, she was later to describe, walking on an opposite pathway towards another entrance. She continued inside the block and up the two flights of stairs to the first floor, where opposite Emily's door, she saw Maya Luffer outside her own front door, just about to put the key into the lock. Now Linda and Maya knew each other, and although they spoke briefly, 
Maya told Linda she didn't have a hearing aid in, so she would telephone her later. Linda said that this would be fine, and as she turned back to Emily's door waiting for her to let her in, she saw the man she'd seen previously coming down the stairs from the second floor, though she noticed as Emily let her in that he appeared to be hesitating on the landing. Maya, meanwhile, was just opening her door as Linda went into her friend's. Linda received no telephone call from her friend Maya that evening. Police believed this was exactly what the man was doing, hanging back between the two floors, waiting for Linda to go inside. It was likely that he'd seen Maya returning from the Wednesday club meeting that she regularly attended, and would have seen her pausing from going inside to talk to Linda, so he hung back on the landing. He likely had grabbed Maya and forced her to go inside, or, because of her small stature and weight, he may even have bodily picked her up to get her inside. Once in, with the door firmly shut, the evidence of blood spray and pooling in the hallway showed that he'd launched a ferocious attack upon her close to the front door, having struck her with some form of weapon that he may have had on his person. He then ransacked the flat, dragging Maya through to and periodically attacking her again in the sitting room before dumping her in the bath where she was found close to death the following day. Shortly afterwards, at about 4.15pm, a woman named Gail Walters, who lived a few doors down from Enid Pool, saw a man heading past a kitchen window in the direction of another part of the complex, Elm Tree Court. The description she gave tallied with all the others mentioned, and this direction would have been the quickest, most logical escape route that Maya's attacker would have taken. So, the day following the attacks, whilst police were by now assembling an increasingly detailed picture of the attacker, and establishing his movements on the day he'd attacked Enid and Maya, scenes of crime officers were now examining each of the scenes. They of course had the homes of Enid and Maya, plus were also examining Julia Morgan's home, their best eyewitness, and Tanya Quilter's porch and door, and did manage to obtain some forensic evidence. Not only were fingerprints taken from the home of Julia Morgan and Tanya Quilter's door, but one was also found on the inside of a 1981 Royal Wedding commemorative biscuit tin on a shelf in Enid's kitchen, as well as a spot of blood on the landing outside her home, one that was not a match for Enid or Maya. Police knew that the sum total that had been stolen from Maya, who at the same moment was recovering from reconstructive surgery in Cardiff Royal Infirmary, was a nationwide building society book, two purses containing a total of £150 in cash, and her flat keys, which the attacker had also taken and used to lock the door behind him when he'd left. Nothing was found to be missing from Enid's flat, apart from her purse and a set of keys with a distinctive fob bearing the letter E on, but it was established that from 6.09 to 6.11pm the previous evening, Five unsuccessful attempts had been made using Enid's Barclays Connect card to withdraw £200 from her account at a cash point at the co-op in the Hayes in Cardiff. So Enid's attacker must have somehow obtained a PIN number from her, which she'd either given incorrectly or he'd misheard or forgotten. 
but although no money was paid out however, the cash machine had not retained the card as it had been programmed to do after three unsuccessful PIN number entries. A witness who had been waiting in line at the cash point did come forward to describe a man with dark hair and a leather jacket stood in front of her using the machine at the crucial time, although she was unable to describe him any further than this. CCTV overlooking the nearby area did also pick up a figure who was likely the same man, but the quality was insufficient to further any identification from this. By two days after the attacks, police had staged a reenactment which had a police officer, similar in description to the attacker, walking around near both the flats and the cash point in Cardiff dressed in similar attire, where people were then stop-checked to see if they remembered seeing someone similar on the night of the attacks. A statement was taken from each witness we've described so far, and each was asked to help create a photo fit of the man, and out of each that was made, police went with a recollection of Rona Bennett, the witness who was most certain that her likeness was accurate. This photo fit picture was then superimposed onto a photograph of a police officer wearing similar clothing to how the attacker had been dressed, and designed to give maximum impact and bring home the horrendous viciousness of the attacks. With the permission of both the families of Enid and Meyer, photographs of the terrible injuries both ladies had received were taken in their hospital beds and were also added to the appeal flyer that was distributed in the South Wales area. The pictures headed, Help us catch this man before he strikes again. Now the appeal poster did just this, it shocked and angered the public, it was felt almost unbelievable that anybody could commit such savagery, and although many people did get in touch with police to offer information, as well as the Welsh TV channel HTV West running a daily appeal for the first week of April on its regional Crime Stoppers programme, no progress of significance had been made when this had passed. So the senior officer in overall command of the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Wynne Phillips, now decided to widen the appeal. And there was only one way to do that, wasn't there? I just know that you're waiting for me to say it. Now was the time for a crime watch reconstruction. Boom. Crime Watch producers agreed immediately when they were contacted, horrified at the savage attacks, and a reconstruction to be aired on that month's Crime Watch, the April 1996 edition of the show, was greenlit. Now thankfully also, the edition is one of those that the legend, pure legend, that is Redcard74 has uploaded to YouTube like some sort of Crime Watch salvationist, and so a link to the reconstruction can be found with the episode show notes this week. The incident team was liaised with, and casting and filming for the reconstruction began. But before then, what was thought to have been the same man struck once more, albeit not with such horrific consequences. On the afternoon of Thursday the 11th of April, an 86-year-old widow, Margaret Parsons, answered a knock to the door of her home in the Cardiff suburb of Rumney to find a young man, leather-jacketed, dark-haired and with a pleasant, polite manner about him, stood on the doorstep of her home and who asked if he could speak to a Mr Perkins who lived there. Margaret had only recently come out of hospital, plus she'd been out for the day as it was her birthday, 
So tired from both that and the exertion, she wasn't as aware as she usually was, but of course told the man that he must be mistaken. There was no Mr Perkins living at that address, nor anywhere nearby that she knew of. Looking confused, the caller asked her for a telephone directory and a glass of water, and after inviting him into the hall and Margaret fetching these for him, he made a point of looking something up in the book, drank the water and left. When he'd gone, she later discovered her remaining pension money was missing from her purse. Crime Watch transmitted the reconstruction of the attacks on Enid and Maya on Thursday the 25th of April, although sanitised details of the violence used in them. The late Jill Dando, hosting at the time, did refer fleetingly to an edition of a newspaper front page containing the distressing hospital pictures of Maya and Enid that left nothing to the imagination, however. As I said a moment ago, the reconstruction is there in the episode show notes for you to have a look at. Detective Superintendent Phillips appeared in the studio to allude to details of the attacks and points of appeal, including linking the incident that I mentioned moments ago. Now response to the reconstruction was good, with the incident room in Barry and the studio receiving some 200 calls in total, several from all across the country suggesting names for Enid and Maya's attacker based on his physical appearance and methodology. Now this was the beauty of Crime Watch and its widespread appeal, when it was still on, doing good of course, and before they pissed about with the format of it, before cancelling it completely because... You can never have too much MasterChef, can you? Well done, BBC. Twats. It was especially a perfect example of its benefit in this case, however, because one of the viewers who'd witnessed the appeal, police officer in Worcester, Detective Sergeant Eric Williams, had something triggered in his memory when he saw the style, method and physical description of the attacker. It was a carbon copy of a man he'd arrested a couple of years previously, a Welshman, and the more he thought about it, the more he became convinced that the wanted man on Crime Watch that evening, and the man he'd arrested, whose name at the time he couldn't remember, but the circumstances of the arrest clear in his mind, were the same person. So the day after the Crime Watch broadcast, Sergeant Williams pulled the file on the abusive Welshman from the Worcestershire Police Archives. One Saturday afternoon in February 1994, Eric had been on duty at the custody suite at Worcester Police Station, still being a uniformed sergeant back then, when at around 5pm, two officers had brought in the Welshman and another man, having arrested both on suspicion of burglary, theft and causing criminal damage. The officers had been responding to a complaint call about two drunken men who were loitering and causing a nuisance in the grounds of a sheltered housing complex in the tithing area of the city centre. Both men were shouting obscenities, the caller reported, and had reportedly damaged a ground floor window in the complex, so within a short time, police had been summoned and were on the scene. They had no difficulty in finding the two men, and during the stop and search process, in the pocket of the drunken Welshman, an envelope containing a cheque and a wage slip bearing the surname of one of the complex's care workers was found. Inquiries with the residents revealed that the Welshman had identified himself as a police officer when he'd been challenged, and explained his purpose for being in the complex grounds at the time was that he'd pursued a convicted rapist that he claimed had been a quote, 
dealing drugs into the complex grounds. I don't think too many police go out already pissed up like, but I digress. Both men were extremely drunk and were arrested on suspicion of the offences described previously, then taken to the custody suite at Worcester Police Station. Here, the Welshman became extremely abusive during processing, calling Sergeant Williams a fat English bastard and kicking the doors and walls of the holding cell he'd been placed in, all the time unleashing a tirade of abusive language against the police. However, once he'd calmed down and sobered up some, the man seemed to undergo a vault-faced personality change. By now expressing himself civilly and politely, he denied any wrongdoing whatsoever. He maintained the story that he'd followed a man he knew to be a convicted rapist into the complex grounds, suspecting the man was up to no good, and had simply found the envelope and wage slip outside and picked it up, intending to return it to its addressee. The other man arrested had eventually been released without charge, but the Welshman was charged with the offences of criminal damage and burglary, which he denied, and was subsequently bailed to attend South Worcestershire Magistrates Court on the 29th of April 1994. The man failed to appear on the allocated date and a warrant was issued for his arrest, although Sergeant Williams could not recollect as to whether the man was apprehended or not as a result. The Welshman's name was Leslie Stuart Salter. Detective Sergeant Williams subsequently contacted the incident room across in Barry and outlined his suspicions about Salter, and although his information was noted and Salter's name was added to the list of potential suspects to be checked, it wasn't given any particularly high priority despite Sergeant Williams stressing that the reason he remembered what would have been an otherwise pretty unremarkable arrest was due to the man's strong resemblance to the photo fit of the Barry attacker, his distinct dangerous and violent nature, and his change in manner from violent thug to plausible and polite citizen. And of course, that he had a strong Welsh accent. By this stage of the inquiry, more than a month in, Maya Luffer was making a slow but promising recovery in hospital. As each day passed, she grew stronger, feeling more her old self once her extensive bruising began fading, and the wounds she'd sustained began to heal somewhat after a major surgery, and slowly but surely, she began to regain some of her independence and her vigour. Sadly, the attack had affected each of the women differently. Although both before the attack had been strong individuals, whereas Maya began to improve in herself once the scar into her face eased, the same couldn't be said for Enid Poole, who just lay in a hospital bed fading increasingly into herself, the attack having destroyed the confidence that she had and leaving her in a constant state of fear needing reassurance at all times. Her niece Sheila Mounter was to say later, as the weeks went by, her mental state just wasn't getting any better. I wondered if she'd even make it, or if her mental state would improve. But she was a very frightened lady, and the injuries to her head were very bad. It wasn't until the 17th of May, three weeks after the Crime Watch broadcast had aired, that a PNC check was made on Leslie Stuart Salter and it was found that he had quite the extensive criminal record, 
having several previous criminal convictions and no less than 13 court appearances to his name since 1981. A little deeper digging at the police archive centre was able to supply details of the offences for which he'd been convicted, which amounted to theft, dishonesty and boom, a couple of cases of distraction burglary. Reading up further on the details of these offences, an interesting observation came to light. In one of the cases Salter had been convicted for, he'd conned his way into the victim's home, who happened to be an elderly woman, by asking for a glass of water. With express interest now growing in Salter, copies of his fingerprints were now obtained from the records office in Gwent, and taken to the Cardiff Fingerprint Bureau to be examined against those that had been removed from the Barry crime scenes. After waiting for what seemed like an eternity, later the same afternoon, the incident room in Barry received a telephone call from the Fingerprint Bureau. Two of the prints found in Julia Morgan's home in Celium Flats, and a partial match of nine points of individuality, rather than the required sixteen, from the print from the interior of the biscuit tin in Enid Poole's kitchen, were a perfect match for the prints of Leslie Stewart Salter. Imagine the atmosphere in the room there. What an absolute spur on that must have been, eh? Got you, you parasitic twat. But finding Salter proved to be no easy task. The last known address police had for him, which was recorded on a previous conviction sheet from six years previously, was in Newport in Gwent, but he was found to have long since moved from here, leaving no forwarding address. A check with DVLA held no driving licence details for Salter, he wasn't on any database registered as claiming any unemployment or incapacity benefit, and he wasn't registered as paying any income tax, the guy was a proper off-grid ghost. It was like trying to do your Christmas shopping on Wish. A deep trawl through records did eventually turn up the address of Salter's brother, but when he was visited by detectives from the inquiry team, he couldn't shed any light on his brother's whereabouts either. The Salter family had been estranged from Leslie for a long time and hadn't seen him in years, and before that, he'd been given them false addresses for himself anyway. After yet another day of fruitless searching, a trawl through the list of confidential informants led to D.S. Williams finally landing an address for Leslie Salter, a backstreet property in the Roth district of Cardiff. So as plans got underway to effect Salter's arrest, on the afternoon of Monday the 20th of May, 80-year-old Doreen Holton answered a knock at the door of a detached house in Gower Road in the Gwent town of Risker to find can you guess? Course you can, because you guys aren't daft, are you? A pleasant-looking, well-spoken, dark-haired Welshman of around 30 stood on a doorstep, of course. The man held up a bunch of keys and asked Doreen if they belonged to her, telling her he'd just found them on her drive. Now, they didn't belong to Doreen, but she wondered if they may belong to her cousin, who'd visited her earlier that afternoon. And explaining this to the man, asked him to wait on the doorstep while she rang her to see. However, her cousin's number was engaged, so she invited the man inside to wait until she'd tried again. He sat down and engaged Doreen in conversation, 
telling her that he'd been considering buying a house very similar to hers for him and his two daughters, and standing up, began to look about the room. He then asked Doreen if she would mind if he looked upstairs, which flustered her a bit, and even though she expressed that she didn't want him to do this, he ignored her and went upstairs anyway. He was up there for about five minutes, and only came down when Doreen called up to him telling him sternly to come down, because she didn't want him being up there. When he arrived back downstairs, he asked Doreen for a pen and paper, and of course, a drink of water. But Doreen refused these requests by now wanting him out of her home and told him to leave. He did go, and as he opened the door, he smiled at her and said, You should be more careful who you let into your house, love. Once the man had gone, Doreen went upstairs and found that her wardrobe and bedside dresser had been opened and searched, but nothing appeared to have been taken from them. Just half an hour later, the same ploy was tried about a mile away in the village of Pontemister at the field and terrace home of 87-year-old Emma Jenkins. The keys were shown to her by the smiling man who asked if they were hers, which she said no to, and then called over her shoulder and asked the houseful of visitors she had at the time if any of them had lost any, to which none had. The man left without speaking another word. Then 20 minutes later, he tried for a third time at the home of 71-year-old Austin Brent, at first asking him if the keys were his, and upon being told they weren't, changing tack and then asking him politely if he was registered as disabled. Austin explained that he wasn't, but a neighbour of his, Megan Weaver, was, and directed the caller to her house, explaining to police later that he thought the caller was specifically looking for a disabled person because he knew, in some way or another, that the keys belonged to someone who was disabled. A few minutes later, the man knocked on Mrs Weaver's door and had now changed tack once again. In a somewhat brusque manner, he explained to the 86-year-old that he was from the council rent department and that her rent arrears had by then accumulated to the sum of £800 the point where she would have to take action and clear the debt required to be paid that day in cash or else she would risk prosecution. Now flustered and upset by this because having never owed such a sum of money in her life, the old lady agreed when the man suggested that if she put on her coat he would take her to the bank to draw the required cash out. He hurried her along as she grabbed a scarf and coat telling her they needed to reach the bank before it closed and reminded her before he hurried her out the door and don't forget your checkbook love. Outside Mrs Weaver was surprised to discover that instead of having a car waiting on the road the man instead told her that they would catch a bus from the stop a bit further up the street. When Megan's crippling arthritis meant that she could only slowly hobble a few steps the man bodily picked her up and carried her the remainder of the way to the stop. The bus came shortly and the pair got on, but by the time they'd got into town and to the bank, it had closed just a minute before. However, at the man's urging, Mrs Weaver rang the bell and seeing her obviously distressed, frail-looking state pulled at the heartstrings of the cashier who came to the door, so Mrs Weaver was let in whilst the man waited outside. A few minutes later, Mrs Weaver came back to the door and explained to the man that there was only £600 in her account, 
but there would be enough to cover the remainder of the arrears in a Halifax Building Society account, but the Halifax would of course be closed by now. The man now went back into the bank with her, calling her Nan in a voice that was loud enough for the bank staff to overhear, and then went and explained to the cashier in a low voice that the old lady was an elderly relative who'd just come out of a lengthy stay in hospital, and he'd been paying her rent for her while she'd been admitted. Heading back over then to Mrs Weaver, he told her to withdraw the full £600, and he was sure that that would suffice for the moment. When she was given the cash, the man held out his hand and took it from her, smiling and telling her, let me have that for safekeeping. He also took, for safekeeping, a checkbook and a house keys. Once outside on the street again, as they walked slowly to the bus stop, as the bus approached, the old man hurried on ahead of the old lady and jumped on it. Now due to her arthritis, she wasn't able to make it to the stop on time, and the bus set off without her. The man even waved to Mrs Weaver as the bus pulled away. Now hearing that, how badly do you want to wipe the smile off this piece of shit's face hearing that, eh? Can you believe the callousness there? I mean, some people, eh? Sickening is the only word that I can say on here, really. I can think of many, many others. Just at the same time as Mrs Weaver was handing over a cash to this smiling parasite, however, three unmarked police cars had drawn up at various points covering the front and rear of a quiet, unassuming house in a back street of the Roth area of Cardiff, where it had been alleged that Leslie Salter lived with a young woman and her parents. As Detective Sergeant Paul Williams knocked at the door, it was answered by a young woman who it was shortly established was Salter's common-law wife, Denise, and after they'd identified themselves to her as police officers, she confirmed that Leslie Salter lived there, but explained that he had not yet returned from his work as a painter and decorator. Asking what they wanted with her boyfriend, Denise was visibly shocked when D.S. Williams told her they were there to speak to him in relation to serious assaults on two elderly women in Barry two months previously and unhesitatingly admitted the detectives inside the property to await Salter's return. During their wait, it was established that Denise and Salter had been in a relationship for almost a year, and that painter and decorator was a trade he told Denise that he'd taken up after he was retired from his role as a Gwent police officer on the grounds of ill health. Which, unsurprisingly, was of course a load of old cock and bollocks. At 6.05pm, Salter let himself into the property and called for Denise, but before he was even out of the hallway, he was rushed at and seized by all three police officers and was formally arrested for the robbery of Maya Luffer and Enid Poole at Laurel Court and Rowan Court and the burglary at Julia Morgan's home at Celium Flats. When cautioned, Salter made no reply and before he was taken to Cardiff's Fairwater Police Station, a search of his person revealed he was carrying £638.14 in cash, a Midland Bank checkbook bearing the name Megan Weaver, his own set of house keys, another unidentified bunch of keys, and two keys on a fob bearing Mrs Weaver's name. 
She got her money and property back almost immediately. I'm sure you'll be very pleased to know. Once in Fairwater, Salter was questioned about the offences but, st but stubbornly denied everything when it was put to him, claiming that the forensic evidence police had was wrong. He explained that on Wednesday the 20th of March, he'd spent the entire day decorating the home of a Mrs Riley in Pont Prenai in the north of Cardiff, the only time leaving there being to go to the local B&Q where he'd bought decorating supplies and was simply mystified as to how a fingerprint bearing nine characteristics that were identical to his own had turned up on a biscuit tin at the scene of such a savage crime. It all had to be a mistake. Yet this fingerprint was later redeveloped, and the fingerprint bureau were able to make out all 16 characteristics, matching it to Salter's fingerprint unquestionably, and he still claimed it was simply wrong. It was also a mistake, he claimed, when wider searches of fingerprint records held on file from scenes of crimes confirmed that his prints were a match for those that had been left at the scene of several other distraction burglaries across the South Wales area, and he couldn't say anything at all, indeed, was visibly dumbfounded when it was put to him that the branch of B&Q that he claimed he'd visited on the 20th of March had actually not opened to the public until the beginning of April. So already stronger than Mr T on a bulwarker, more and more evidence was soon being added to the case against Salter. A 75-year-old widow from Risker, Ellen Prescott, reported to police the day after Salter had been arrested that a set of house keys she normally kept on a hook in the cupboard near to her front door were missing, along with a purse containing £100 in cash and some keepsake photographs from a chest in her bedroom. They had already discovered that the same day in Risker, Mrs Weaver had been conned out of money after tracing the name on the checkbook, and connecting the two, on a hunch police showed Mrs Prescott the unidentified set of keys that had been found on Salter when he was arrested, which she identified immediately as being hers. It was presumed that the previous lunchtime, when Mrs Prescott had visited the local laundry, Salter had entered the house, stolen the keys and effects, and then left, taking the items with him. Her empty purse was later discovered in the cistern of a toilet at the Risker Working Men's Club, where Salter had admitted to police he was drinking later on the Wednesday afternoon, and witnesses who were spoken to there remembered Salter being there very well for he was passing himself off as a police officer whilst he was. At 7.15pm on Thursday the 23rd of May 1996, Leslie Stewart Salter was charged with the robbery of, and causing grievous bodily harm with intent upon, Enid Poole and Maya Luffer, and following appearing in Cardiff Magistrates Court the following morning, was remanded in custody to Cardiff Prison awaiting trial. Maya Luffer was by that time almost completely recovered from her injuries and would soon be leaving the hospital. Her old vigour returned and having told her niece that she wanted to go back to the home where she'd been attacked, craving her familiarity and her friends nearby. Enid Poole, however, was by that time still languishing in a Barry nursing home, barely physically recovering and left a mere shell of her former self. Her niece, Sheila Mounter, recalled, 
Most of the time I was just reassuring her and being close to her. She was so frightened all of the time. All she wanted to do was hold your hand. On Thursday the 7th of November 1996, 30-year-old Leslie Stewart Salter appeared at Cardiff Crown Court where he entered a plea of guilty to 19 separate offences including robbery, burglary and wounding with intent. Before sentencing, prosecuting counsel Stephen Cooper QC told the court of the horrendous catalogue of known offences Salter had committed that we've outlined here and how he had tricked his way into the homes of the elderly and vulnerable 86-year-old Meyer and 90-year-old Enid, escaping with just a small amount of cash, a set of keys and a cash card, after ransacking their flats and leaving them for dead. Seven Stone Meyer, an active woman and former vice president of the local townswomen's guild, had put up a brave fight but had suffered horrendous head injuries, including a fractured cheek and jaw, that required her to have reconstructive surgery. Mrs Poole, at one time given an award for her charity work, was now, the prosecutor said, I quote, a shell of her former self. She has lost her independent lifestyle and is bedridden in a nursing home where she constantly asks staff, will he be able to get me here? Salter's barrister, David Wynne Morgan QC, could offer nothing in mitigation to this, telling the court, These were terrible offences which he will have to live with for the rest of his life. He has no explanation of the outbursts of violence. His pleas of guilty were an expression of his remorse. Before sentencing, presiding Lord Justice Tucker referred to the appalling injuries that Enid and Meyer had suffered saying that the sickening police pictures that had been used in the appeal were, I quote, indescribable. Addressing Salter directly, he then instructed court officials to show copies of the photographs to him, telling him, you should see the photographs of the horrific injuries you have inflicted. Just look at your handiwork. Salter took the briefest of glances at the pictures, before turning his eyes away and looking down at the floor of the dock. He did look up, however, but said nothing, as Mr Justice Tucker then sentenced him to four terms of life imprisonment, with a recommendation that Salter should serve a minimum tariff of 12 years. It is now time for the public to be protected from you for a very long time, he told him. Salter was then taken away to begin his sentence. Sadly, just a month after Salter's conviction, Enid Poole died at a Barry nursing home, having never recovered from the terrible ordeal he had inflicted upon her. Although this was almost nine months after the attack, and this length of time would lessen the chances of any possible conviction, there was little doubt that the attack had been the cause of her death. It had destroyed her quality of life, leading to a sharp decline in her well-being. But detectives who had worked on the inquiry had a burning desire to see justice properly done here. I mean, photographs such as Enid and Myers must be burned into your mind if you've worked on a case such as this one. And as we said earlier, if you saw that, 
then you'd go to the ends of the earth to make sure whoever was responsible was to pay, wouldn't you? You wouldn't stop. Salter was also considering an appeal against his conviction, and detectives learned that he was prepared to say he'd only pleaded guilty because his barrister had told him to, which, however bollocks it sounds that, always brings with it a chance that he may get off, or at the very least may have his sentence shortened. And no one wants that, do they? So police consulted with the CPS to see about the possibility of bringing a murder charge against Salter for the death of Enid Poole, and were met with the news that with a properly prepared case, there was a good chance of gaining a conviction. Boom, let's be having it then. At the end of January 1997, the Mounters were spoken to to see how they felt about this, to which they had mixed feelings. It had been such a painful year that they were reluctant at first to have to retrace something that they were only just beginning to now put behind them, Enid sadly having passed away. But on the other hand, they had no doubts that it had been the assault on her that had ultimately killed her. Richard Mounter said later, As far as I'm concerned, with her health as it was at the time, there's no reason at all why she couldn't have gone on and got her centenary. Her life changed completely after that night. She'd been an outgoing happy person, and overnight she became a shell of her former self. So in the end, the Mounters agreed and gave their support to the police action. Richard furthered, He'd been given four life sentences with a recommendation to serve a minimum of 12 years, and we weren't sure whether going for a murder conviction would actually increase that sentence or not. But eventually, we thought, well, he left them both to die in the first instance, so go for it. Too bloody right. It was established through friends and neighbours who'd known Enid that before Salter had attacked her, she'd been an independent, alert woman with an active social life and who did lots of charity work. A description juxtaposed with statements from the staff at the Barry nursing home where she spent her final days, who each spoke of her quality of life since moving there as being very poor indeed. Following the attack, she'd lost her freedom of movement, most of her speech, and all of her confidence. The one thing she asked everybody constantly was, am I safe? Will you be able to get me here? Enid's GP of many years, Dr Stephen Jones, made a statement to police to the effect that in his medical opinion, the crippling fear she'd experienced since the attack had debilitated her physical and mental well-being, rendering her unable to combat the infections which had eventually killed her. Whilst the geriatric consultant Dr Simi Sastry and other healthcare professionals who'd attended her at Cardiff Royal Infirmary following the attack echoed this, saying Enid's frailty began with her injuries, hence that her condition began to deteriorate, there being no other cause for her death. Police surgeon Dr Sally Wood signed a statement that catalogued in detail the injuries she'd found when she'd examined Enid in hospital the day after the attack. An eminent home office pathologist, Dr Ian West, agreed that, following being shown the medical report by Dr Sue Claydon, who'd conducted the post-mortem examination upon Enid at the University Hospital of Wales, that the assault was a major contributing factor in her death. Following this, in February 1997, 
Detective Sergeant Paul Williams and Detective Constable Paul James visited Salter in Cardiff Prison, where he was subsequently charged with the murder of Enid Poole. Salter's simple response was, I'm going to sue you if my photos get in the papers again. On Thursday the 15th of January 1998, 31-year-old Salter appeared once again at Cardiff Crown Court, this time to stand trial for the murder of Enid Poole, and where once again Salter entered a guilty plea, having no realistic option other than to really, following the plea at his earlier trial, plus so compelling was the medical evidence. Presiding judge Mr Justice Thomas had no qualms subsequently issuing Salter with his fifth term of life imprisonment, which I'm sure you'll be pleased to know he is still today serving. Detective Sergeant Williams said following the conviction, speaking of Salter's viciousness towards Enid and Meyer, he didn't need to do it to take their money or anything else they had, he did that because he wanted to. I don't know what his motivation was, but there was never a need for it, and I think that's what I'll remember about him. I think he's quite a clever character. I think that before committing his crimes, he looks at the area and the type of people he wishes to prey on. I think he spends a lot of time in planning what he does, and I think he's quite an intelligent person. I felt that he deserved to be charged with Mrs. Poole's murder, and I was glad to be there. Following Salter's arrest, Maya Luffer had returned to the flat where she'd lived, refusing to let the spectre of Salter ruin the home where she'd been so happy. She actually stayed back in the Laurel Court flat by herself for another three years following being released from her 14-week hospital stay, before illness and infirmity forced her into the College Fields nursing home in Barry in 1999. Maya passed away there on November the 8th, 2001, aged 91. Following her death, the Barry and District News later that month paid tribute in an article dedicated to her, reflecting upon her life's work and accomplishments, explaining how she'd first taught in Gloucestershire, before in 1952 becoming the first head teacher of the newly built Colcott Primary School and president of the NUT in Barry. Even after she retired in 1975 at the age of 65 she'd continued to lecture part-time at Barry College, as well as being an active member of the Business and Professional Women's Club, the Vice President of Barry Towns Women's Guild, a member of the Barry Floral Art Club and a committee member of both the Citizens Advice Bureau and the Save the Children Fund in Barry. She'd remained respected, hard-working and active like this aside from her hospital stay following the attack, right up until illness forced her into college fields, aged 89. A remarkable woman, and I'm sure you'll agree, that's a much preferable way for her to be remembered, rather than being left for dead at the hands of Leslie Salter. A truly horrendous and callous tale this one is, isn't it? And what jumped straight into my mind, how many other times has Salter done something like this that aren't known of? Violence like that doesn't come from nowhere, and the cruelty to not only batter two elderly vulnerable ladies to near death for no reason whatsoever, because neither would have been a threat to him, apart from sheer bloodlust, is carnage enough, 
it's horrific. But to ensure that the telephone is ripped out, so on the slight chance they could get to it, they couldn't call for help anyway. And to then lock each of them in? Where does that begin? What on earth do you say to that? Or to be so callous as to forcibly escort an elderly arthritic woman to a bank to make her empty her account out of fear and then pocket it and even have the gall to wave to her as the bus you're getting away on passes her. And these are just what's known. I have no doubt in my mind that Salter had caused misery for countless other elderly vulnerable people over the years before he was incarcerated. I mean... Look at his polished routine, his plausibleness and his confidence. Sadly, there's only one way that you attain that, isn't there? I don't want to think about the violence, but that level, to do that twice in the space of 20 minutes, who else has he inflicted such horror upon? Because surely he must have done that before. As he was estranged from his family for many years and would only give them false addresses for where he was living when he was in touch with them, we don't know a picture of Salter's exact movements around the country. He did mention in one conversation Cheltenham and Worcestershire, plus we know he was arrested in Worcestershire at least once. But that's just two possible places to look. How many other old dears around the country have been left beaten half to death, or perhaps even worse, at the hands of Leslie Salter? He certainly isn't saying and I'd sooner believe the moon is made of bloody green cheese than think he even has a shadow of remorse for any of his actions. Any remorse Leslie Salter has is for himself and for getting caught. So this case, truly one of the worst and most distressing I've ever looked at here on the show, wasn't actually the chosen one for this week as I said at the start, but as that one turned out to be a bit more complex than I'd first considered, that'll be coming next time around. Get yourselves ready, because it's another two-parter. And so I opted to tell Enid and Maya's stories instead, because these are two people who definitely don't deserve to be forgotten, do they? I know they've been heart-wrenching and horrendous accounts to hear, and I'd invite you as ever to share your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode with me, which you can do in the episode thread that's up now on the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group page, or through any of the show's social media links. I'm always happy to discuss with you guys wherever. I'll wrap up here now then and crack on with the next tale, which I shall be back very soon with also. I thank you very kindly for joining me here today. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times. Stay safe out there, you lot, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.